Clinic. And I'm sitting uh, with my longtime friends, I think I can say. Uh, the Chief uh, Charles Weaselhead is to my left, and to his right is Dr. Esther Tailfeathers. And Dr. Tailfeathers is a graduate of uh, the University of Lethbridge and was in my classes many years ago, I guess I can, can say. A few years ago. A few years ago. And uh, when I first moved to Southern Alberta, uh, Charles Weaselhead. Uh, I befriended Charles uh, somewhat, and uh, he's known widely and universally and affectionately around this community as Charlie Boy. But he is the uh, the uh, chief of the Blood Tribe. I would say he is one of the busiest individuals in Southern Alberta. Uh, it's a very uh, high-powered uh, executive position. Um, and uh, now here. Phone ringing. Okay. Maybe it's something to do with. Hello? Is that Mark? Okay, we're started. Um, can you give the phone number information? Um, somehow they didn't have your phone number information. Empires, largely European empires. 
and indigenous peoples all over the planet have been affected very dramatically by the expansion of these empires. In Africa and Asia, these empires by and large did not involve big migrations of people, but obviously here in North America, there was a huge migration accompanying this colonization, this process of colonization, so that the indigenous people became small minorities in their own territories. And often their languages, their laws, their modes of self-determination uh, were repressed, were um, marginalized. In fact, uh, in Canada, the uh, Indian Act included provisions that outlawed the Sundance, which is very important in this part of the world. So I want to introduce the subject uh, as part of a, a large view of, uh, yeah, now we're seeing uh, Mark come in from uh, Regina. That's Dr. Mark Spooner, Professor of Education in Regina. I want to introduce it in this light and that uh, we're looking at indigenous peoples, in a sense, globally and how they have been affected by colonization. But we're starting right here in our home territory in uh, the midst of Nitsitapi territory, blood territory, Blackfoot territory. Uh, this is the indigenous people here. And uh, Charles Weaselhead is the chief of the blood tribe. There's about 12,000 members of the blood tribe. Charles, his history uh, in, in the blood tribe administration is through the blood tribe hospital and now the blood health department. And we're here in a, in a rather um, elaborate and very impressive, really complex health complex, which uh, Charles Weasel had had much to do with bringing about. And uh, Dr. Esther Tailfeathers, of course, has a prominent role in, in this facility and in this community. Esther is a Blood Tribe member. Esther also, when I was getting to know her, was very involved in something called the World Council of Indigenous Peoples that was founded by George Manuel. Esther has her children with a, a Sami man who she met through the World Council of Indigenous uh, Peoples. And uh, the World Council of Indigenous Peoples had its headquarters at the University of Lethbridge. And I must say, Esther, over the years, uh, although I was technically your prof, you've taught me a lot and uh, uh, helped me to uh, get a, a better feeling for um, the local scene here. So uh, with that, I'll invite uh, Chief Weaselhead to uh, present what reflections he might have on our subject for tonight. Thank you, uh, Tony. I want to welcome all the viewers. I'm not sure where, which part of the country we're viewing. But again, my name is uh, Chief Charles Weaselhead. That, that's the University of Lethbridge. University of Lethbridge. Yeah, okay. that's my class at the University and of Lethbridge. And Regina as well. And the, that's Dr. Okay. Mark Spooner from Regina, taking part in, this whole, uh, in the whole series of these classes. Well, thank you for allowing us, uh, Dr. Tailfeathers and myself, uh, to share a part of our history a part of our culture, a part of our, our uh, directions in regards to somehow taking perhaps not full control of our health system, perhaps not taking full control of our lives as we see it uh, on reserve. Many of us uh, have come through the uh, residential school era 
and part of part of that whole history of colonization, you know, reflects an impact has had a major impact on who we are today. Although, you know, many factors uh, come into play over time, I, I do know that the Blood Tribe, uh, with 10,000 plus population, has built uh, many inroads in regards to maintaining our culture, our identity, our language. You know, although some of that is being lost, you know, uh, as well with the next generation after us. But in regards to health, I do know that uh, the Blood Indian Hospital since 1928, uh, and it just most recently closed in 1999. And the Indian Hospital for many years represented a symbol of our agreement with the uh, government in regards to the responsibility and the fiduciary that they had to provide services and programs back to us uh, based on those treaties. So as far back as I can remember, 1928, the hospital was the first acute care hospital in this region. Uh, it served both the uh, native population, the First Nation population, and it also served the uh, uh, non-Aboriginal population in the uh, surrounding areas. And that was taken over and provided by the Grey Nuns. So by the year 1954, when the Department of Indian Affairs uh, was formally structured uh, in more ways than one, we saw the transfer of the Indian Hospital from the Grey Nuns to the Department of Indian Affairs. So from 1954, there was uh, an agreement again that we provide hospital services as part of the original agreement that we had. And in 1999, the uh, hospital uh, was closed. So those were some of the things that we began uh, to see that we it started to disintegrate what we know about our culture, our identity, and our capacity to lead our own people, to provide services to our own people. Especially in the area of health, it's been known to me, it's been transferred, the knowledge has been transferred to all of us. Our concept is one that's based on wellness rather than one that is uh, trying to provide a cure to a sickness. So it's been taught to us, you know, that uh, the body, the mind, the spirit, and our emotions are all tied together. So based on that concept, you know, we've, we've struggled, you know, in regards to trying to understand, you know, what the Department of uh, Indian Affairs has, is trying to provide health services to us. But that's just one portion of it, you know. So maybe Tony, uh, as an introduction, maybe uh, I can end with that and then we, we can perhaps, uh, I can provide more details about the history, where we are in regards to self-determination, where Aboriginal health is going, and then uh, we can uh, move on forward from there. Great. So I, I have uh, questions myself, mm -hmm. but maybe I'll hold back. Uh, are there any questions in Lethbridge or Regina? Any uh, comments at this stage? Sounds good. Okay. If not, uh, is it all right now, Esther? We'll we'll move to uh, to your your uh, introductory remarks. I, mm -hmm. I think if that's how 
we're going to we're going to work here. Let's see. <laughs> Too close. Okay. Take her away. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome you um, here to the Blood Reserve into our video, our teleconference room, which uh, um, is high tech in the middle of uh, in the middle of our reserve. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, Tony for inviting me, and I'd like to thank um, our Chief Charles Weaselhead for joining us. Uh, it's quite an honor for me to be able to make a presentation. Um, side by side with our chief. Um, I need to probably give you a little bit of background on what I do um, so that you can ask me questions later on um, from the reality of, of where I am. Uh, I'm a Blood Tribe member, born and raised here, um, went to public school, uh, and then went on to do uh, Native American Studies where I did uh, some classes with Tony at the University of Lethbridge, and then went on to um, to further things and eventually finished school, uh, medical school at the University of North Dakota and then did my residency in family medicine at the um, uh, University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, through all of that experience, I have had multiple um, or vast experience with different Aboriginal groups within the country as well as Aboriginal groups in, uh, in the United States. and. Um, so what I'm bringing to you is uh, experience and knowledge that you can ask questions of, um, and I'm not afraid to answer any questions, and I hope that you're not afraid to ask any questions. Um, what I intended initially was to speak about the, the impact that colonization and the loss of self-determination has upon the health of Aboriginal people, primarily our people, uh, people of the Blood Reserve. Um, and I just want to bring it to you so that it's more of a reality rather than, um, than I mean, it is academic and something that's very important for us to get a grasp of, but the reality is here on the blood reserve for me. The reality is the number of people that we lose on a month-to-month -month basis to um, addiction, to cirrhosis, to drug addiction, um, to all of the, the realities that we see in the emergency room, uh, in the clinic, um, and a lot of the, the people that you may see um, that have hardship, that's the reality for us here, and that's brought to us by the loss of self-determination and the, um, the ongoing um, thrust of colonization. Um, the question I want you to, to think about during all of this is how did we get here? How did Aboriginal people get to this point where we're losing large numbers of people to um, cirrhosis, to violence, to um, diabetes? How did we get here? I mean, obviously the other populations in the country do not suffer from the large amount of, um, or the, the mortality and morbidity of um, addictions and diabetes and all of those things. The question you need to ask is how did we get here? And then the question we need to ask is how do we get out of here? How do we make things better for ourselves? So those are the two questions and they're very simple, but there's a lot that you need to think about. Um, in an in in attempt to ask the first question, um, how did we get here? I will have to go back and talk about early colonization. And um, so um, I'd 
I want you to break in if you have any questions. Um, I don't have any problems answering those. Um, I'm going to start in about the 1870s um, with early colonization in this area. Um, people like um, uh, David Thompson, a number of other explorers coming into the area in the early 1800s, and then later on we had um, people coming from um, the whiskey trade, from the um, Hudson Bay trade, and all of the traders that ended up in this area. And then, and then further to that was missionaries, the churches that arrived here, primarily in our area, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. Um, the 1970s, I mean, the 1870s saw the beginning of the end of the buffalo for us. And as you know, um, our people were highly dependent on the buffalo. Um, the buffalo provided shelter, food, uh, clothing, and almost all of the essentials that we needed besides what the plants and, um, and um, roots in this area also offered. Um, we were very dependent on the buffalo. So um, that was our traditional source of food. And if you think about it, it was very high in protein, very low in carbohydrates and um, pretty well had the sustenance that we needed to get through living from season to season in this environment. In the 1880s, we saw the beginning of the treaty process in Alberta. And the treaty process is very important because it puts a stop to, and a change to the nomadic lifestyle and the traditional hunting, gathering lifestyle that we had, which was actually very healthy. It was um, a difficult lifestyle, but there were no there were none of the current diseases that we see at the time, so it was a, it was a hard lifestyle, but um, it was our tradition. Um, in 1887 was the signing of Treaty 7, and that was the Blackfoot, the Blood, the Pagan, the Stony, and the Sarsi. That's the part, the treaty that we belong to is Treaty Number 7. Um, in 1883, we saw the last buffalo hunt of our people. And so we're seeing that era as a, a big change, a change from our traditional lifestyle to something very different. The major, uh, the, one of the major changes with the treaty, treaty process was the, um, the, um, the beginning of the end of movement. So people were, um, were by law required to stay within the reservation or the reserves that they were, um, that they were assigned to or the reserves that we belong to. If anybody was caught leaving the reserve after the treaty process, they were actually um, put in jail and brought back. So if anybody wanted to, there was a number of people that wanted to hunt outside of the, out of the reserve area. They were often caught, uh, brought back by the Northwest Mounted Police and told not to leave the reserve. So they were unable to leave the reserve without a ticket or, a, or permission to leave which meant that the access to the wild game, such as elk, um, deer, uh, and the buffalo that were no longer on the reserve were not accessible to us anymore by law. In 1899, um, or in 1882, was the treaty, initiation of Treaty 6. And the importance of Treaty 6 is Treaty 6 does um, detail, or not detail, but it does mention that health is a treaty right in that they say that the they have a medicine cabinet clause in Treaty Number 6. Um, in 1889, Treaty Number 8 was written, and it was, it was for the areas north of the Athabasca, which includes the Beaver, Slavey, uh, Woodland Cree, and the Chippewa. In 
In the 1880s, we saw a big change in, in diet because we no longer had the buffalo, and, and the beginning of what were called ration houses were initiated. And the ration houses were areas or houses that were provided by the federal government for communities that were starving. And the rations that were distributed were basically um, a large lump of animal fat, sometimes um, animal or beef or meat. Um, a lot of times it wasn't, um, it wasn't fresh. Um, flour, sugar, and um, salt. And if you if you just remember that for the you know for when we're when I talk about diet later on in the, in this in this um, talk, it's very important to the initiation of the of or the beginning of what we call what we see as diabetes in our community. Um, in the 1890s was the beginning of residential school, and it's highly important that you understand the impact of residential school on Aboriginal people. Um, not only were children taken from their homes, um, they were they were um, forced to learn a new language and not speak the language that comes from their mother's tongue, from the from their hearts. Um, they were also forced to learn other people's rules. And I maintain that um, that every individual has a right to self determination or to control themselves. In residential school, children had no choices at all. All the choices were made for them. They were told when to wake, uh, you know, when to eat, what to eat, uh, when to go to the bathroom. You know, everything was controlled. It was a very controlled environment where children did not have the chance to make the choices that children normally do today. So from a, from a very early age, the, the process of self-determination or, or making decisions on your own was taken away from our people. Um, the other thing that will come up later as well is the um, the, the interruption of parenting skills. And um, I think that that's very important to the health of most people is that they learn naturally from watching what their parents are teaching them and they learn the behavior of their parents. In this environment, there was no nurturing or very little nurturing, and, and the children that grew up in the residential schools did not learn a parenting process. It was interrupted. In the 19, um, 1910 and 20 uh, era, our tribe, the Blood Tribe, initiated farming um, and ranching um, and, and tried, to, um, tried to become very successful in that, in that um, initiative. Um, so our people actually had produced, um, I have from what's called Our Betrayed Wards, which is a paper that you may want to read. Um, our people produced about, 60, in 1916, our people produced 65,000 bushels, bushels of wheat, 27,000 bushels of barley, uh, 7,000 tons of hay, and everybody had gardens. Um, it, was, it was an initiative that people took to to um, change from a nomadic life lifestyle to a, um, a sedentary agricultural lifestyle. And our people tried very hard and did very well by the numbers that I'm telling you. Um, they still had fairly healthy diet when they had the gardens and, um, and were trying this new initiative. But it was shortly after that that the decline started in the, in the, early, the late 1920s and early 1930s. As you know, most of the people in southern Alberta started to um, 
um, to experience the Great Depression, and so did our people. But the problem that um, compounded the depression with our people is that the sale of um, any wheat, any hay, any beef had to be okayed by the Department of Indian Affairs, and so our people were unable to sell those things without the um, without the the ticket to sell them. And many times that was um, the process was too slow, and people would lose the animals. We did have a couple of really terrible winters where we were not able to purchase hay to feed the cattle. And um, the process was slow, so slow from Ottawa that many of the cattle starved in one winter because we were unable to purchase hay because Ottawa would not um, would not okay that. So um, we started to see a decline in our economy, in our self-determination, and, and the effort that our people made to make that transition from a nomadic lifestyle to a um, an agricultural lifestyle. The other thing that still impedes um, the progress of our um, economy today is the fact that we are unable to make personal, I mean, we're not unable to make loans or mortgages based on, um, on, our, on our land base or on individual, um, or individuals are unable to do that. And the first effects that we saw were that our people were unable to borrow money to buy tractors and farming equipment whereas the farmers in the outside community were able to borrow money from the bank, they bought the big equipment, and eventually our people were unable to compete the equipment that, um, that was bought at the time, and um, that also contributed to the downfall of our agricultural economy at the time. Um, when I talked to uh, elders and asked them, when do you think things really started to go bad? A lot of the elders will tell you when we started to get welfare. And so uh, in looking back, we're looking back at when um, Aboriginal people started to accept welfare or what we thought or what we, we consider today as public um, or social support. In, the, in 1927, Canada's first public pension scheme came out and relief was provided to old and, um, the old and handicapped in the form of rations. Um, and that's when a breakdown begins in, um, in this cash economy. People were introduced to um, cash from the, um, from the federal government in the form of welfare. In the 1940s, we had uh, a number of our men went overseas to fight in World War II. Upon returning to Canada, they were not accepted as, um, as Canadian citizens, as most of our people were not defined as Canadian citizens up until 1969. We were still defined as Indians and not Canadian citizens. So those people that went to war for Canada were not allowed um, the same benefits that most of our veterans from, um, that went to war in, 19, in, in the 1940s were allowed when they came back. And um, although they did go to fight for Canada, they were not treated like Canadians when they came back. Um, Throughout the 40s up until the 60s, um, there was a slow decline in our economy and, um, and an increase in the incidence of disease. Um, in the 1930s, there were no cases of diabetes detected over all of the individuals in this area. There were no cases of diabetes that were um, mentioned. In the early 1960s is when we started to see 
um, individual cases of diabetes, and um, they were only isolated, and and no no exact number was given, but very isolated, and nobody had the experience of of diabetes. Um, I just want to um, just detract from that for a minute and and quickly draw um, uh, a picture of what happens when uh, a population begins to develop diabetes. There is a population in in, in the, an Aboriginal population in the United States, the Pima Nation, um, which is highly studied because of the incidence of, and prevalence of diabetes in that community. And what happened with the Pima Indians is that they had um, gardens and they and they um, they had a very agricultural society along the Gila River. And in the early um, 30s, in the 1930s um, or 40s, the, the Gila River was um, was flooded, or that the base where they were um, had their agricultural, all their gardens and everything else was flooded. And they were given um, they were given a, a payment in return for the use of their land or their land that was flooded. And they did not have diabetes either, but they have found that um, that the incidence of diabetes was directly correlated with the the time that it the time from when they stopped doing their gardening, from when they were active and when they were self-determining to when they started to develop great numbers of diabetes. And that that population is highly studied today. Um, since that time, it has been just expanding and expounding numbers of um, Aboriginal people who are um, who have developed addictions, um, and alcohol is no secret among uh, Aboriginal people. Our tribe has a, a very big problem with um, alcoholism. Um, in the line of work that I'm in, I have um, probably um, pronounced at least once a month we lose an individual directly to cirrhosis. Um, in the emergency room, I've pronounced individuals that have been um, killed as a re result of violence related to, um, to alcohol abuse, um, domestic violence, um, violence between young people, car accidents, and um, you know the, the experience is um, is one that uh, that brings reality to the addictions that we have um, developed over the years. I just want to go back a bit to this idea of control. I have had many, many clinicians and many people ask me, well, why can't people quit? Why can't they control um, their diet? Why can't they control their addiction? You know, why are they doing this? Um, and what I have to tell you is that it has a direct correlation also with the, the level of control that people have in their lives. Many of these people that we're seeing that are dying today are people that were never given the um, given the opportunity to make those decisions for themselves. Most of those people were institutionalized. Many of the patients that I have pronounced, I know were institutionalized and did not have the choice of when to eat, what to eat, what to wear. All of those choices were made for them. And now that they've become adults, you know, it's expected that they make those choices and they make they take control of their lives when they actually re really did not have the, um, the experience of doing that as children. And I think that there's a, a direct relationship with the, um, with the level of control that people have in their own lives and the amount of, uh, or, the, or the addictions that they have. 
Um, I think I'm going to take a break because I think I've known you really with a lot of that. So I'd like uh, questions or perhaps Charlie would like to. Hi. I'm Arlene Moore and I just wanted Hi, to... Hi, Hi. Yeah, <laughs> I, just I wanted was looking to for you. The three of you, Tony and Charles and uh, Esther, know that I'm here too. I work on the blood type. I'm a registered dietitian, and in my position, it's called Kinai Diabetes Program. I just don't know where to look. Usually, I have people in front of me. Oh. <laughs> anyway, we see you uh, looking right at us. You're just yeah. staring right at okay. us. So, so yeah. in my position in the Kinai Diabetes Program, I work with an, a nurse from Blood Tribe, Leanne Johnson, and. Um, we work together, and this program, Kainai Diabetes Program, is a partnership between the Blood Tribe Department of Health and the Chinook Health Region. And it's a very special partnership because it's the only one in Canada that there is a partnership like that with the First Nations community and a health authority. And it's a very important project because the diabetes program is very important in the community because of the uh, devastation of diabetes among Aboriginal people. But I have to say that diabetes is, um, diabetes is rising worldwide. It has more recently been declared epidemic in Canada among many, many people, but epidemic overall in Canada. And um, however, it has hit pockets of ethnic groups, including Aboriginal people, harder. So having said that, we're, I'm referring to type 2 diabetes, which used to be called adult onset diabetes. And um, there's type 1 diabetes, which was known as juvenile diabetes. Juvenile and adult onset, those terms are no longer used because in 1986, a physician by the name of Heather Dean in Manitoba, she, uh, she would see lots of cases of young children with type 1 diabetes. And then she started to see some cases, um, or one particular case at this point in time in 1986, where this child, a five-year-old, was exhibiting symptoms of type 2 diabetes with, um, and her colleagues thought she was crazy, that, or because it was unheard of for this, a child to have type 2 diabetes. And it turned out that this was the first case, it was in St. Teresa's Point in Manitoba, it was the first case of a young child having type 2 diabetes. Now, one of the big problems with this is, first of all, children did not get type 2 diabetes. And we now know that it's directly related, oh, it's directly related to lifestyle. Um, but lifestyle is not the only factor. There are other factors that can come into play, stress, um, which is related to lifestyle, but even pollution. And you can never say if somebody has diabetes, well, if only they would have ate healthier or if only they would have exercised more because the environment has a lot to do as to whether we are able to put those plans into action. If we want to um, put more activity into our life, what's available to us makes a difference too, the choices that are available to us. So if a young child gets type 2 diabetes, once you get diabetes, you want to prevent the risk of complications to the eyes, to the kidneys, etc. When a young child gets it, they have a lot of growth hormone in their body and it can speed up these complications from occurring. So we want to work hard on prevention. This is what our chief Charles had said, that the concept is one that's based on wellness. 
So we want to move forward and prevent these things from happening. So I also work in the schools. I work all over the community, wherever I can put that type of concept for, forward as well. So having said that, um, I'll give you back the floor. Thank you. Did, did you bring your colleague? Uh, you mentioned a nurse. Uh, did you bring her? Or? Well, if I had brought her, she would be sitting beside you. But I yeah. did invite her, yes. Thank you. Yeah. And is James, your, James Moore, your husband in the room? Yes, I'm here. Hi, James. Yeah, very good. Okay, let's, uh, I certainly uh, have some reflections on this. Uh, okay, uh, James Shaw. I just wanted a quick uh, background on diabetes and what it does to your body. I don't really know enough about it. Maybe really quickly, just tell us. Somebody? Well, let's ask the doctor. Okay. Okay. Um, simply, there's two different kinds of, or there's multiple kinds of diabetes, but there's two major types of diabetes. There's type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Um, type 1 diabetes is what many people know as juvenile onset, and um, your pancreas or uh, the pancreas develops um, insulin, and um, and we're not really quite sure what destroys that process in type 1 diabetes, and it's usually children or um, juvenile onset. So the, the pancreas um, loses the ability to make insulin, and insulin is what your body needs for your for your cells to absorb um, sugar, which is your fuel, um, from your blood into your cells so that your muscles will work or any of the cells in your body will work so that you're healthy. Type 2 diabetes is different than type 1 diabetes in that even though a person's pancreas is working and developing insulin, the, um, the body itself, the cells are not, um, they become fatigued and they no longer accept the insulin and um, so they become insulin resistant. And um, most of the Aboriginal people who develop diabetes develop type 2 diabetes, and it's an adult onset, although, as Arlene uh, mentioned earlier, we're seeing more and more cases of um, uh, onset of diabetes in children. That's actually type 2 diabetes, where the pancreas is working, but their body's not accepting the insulin. and um, and so they end up having high levels of sugar in their blood, and the, the sugar does a lot of damage. The high levels of blood sugar cause damage to the to your nervous system, which causes damage to your eyes. Um, it causes damage to the kidneys, um, and, it, and it causes an overall um, uh, not wellness or illness, where people, you know, begin to um, begin to lose a lot of um, other functions in their body. But um, that, those are the two types of diabetes. Uh, as I understand it, uh, diabetes is showing up among Indigenous people all over the world, among the Maori in New Zealand, among the Aborigines in Australia. It has a lot to do, to do with going from wild foods to uh, foods, and essentially poverty foods, foods that are very... Uh, High in carbohydrates, junk foods. Ration foods, like sugar. the ration health foods that we talked about with the white flour, the starches, sugar, salt, and fat. All those things are not good for you, but they were also what were given from the ration health. And many of the other Aboriginal groups have the same kind of diet that was initiated. And if you're on welfare, you know, you're going to have to eat a lot of carbohydrates. Yeah. Um, we, we went through an awful lot of uh, points there. We mentioned, for instance, the treaty. The Treaty of Treaty 7 in this area, the Treaty of 1877, 
Um, and uh, in a sense, the treaty is the point in history where you can say, well, there is some recognition. Uh, to make a treaty, you must have two parties who are who have the ability to make laws. It's some recognition of there being some kind of reciprocity and equality between the British sovereign and, and the party making the treaty, the Blackfoot being the major party making the, the treaty. Uh, and then we mentioned uh, the Indian Act. Uh, the treaty establishes the basis of reserves, but then comes along this other approach, which is based in legislation of the Government of Canada, known as the Indian Act. And as I understand it, the Indian Act essentially transforms registered Indians into wards of the government. So registered Indians don't have the powers of citizens. They can't make contracts. They can't vote in elections. They can't run for office. So when you talk about disempowerment, the, the Indian Act regime was you know, immense in, 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 in the uh, extent to which it went to take away people's ability to, to act, in, to represent themselves in court, to represent themselves in politics. Uh, all the power was centered in, in the Minister of Indian Affairs who delegated these uh, powers to Indian agents, like governors who, who governed Indian communities. Um, and it's still unclear what the relationship is between registered Indians and, and, and citizens. Um, um, so um, there's a lot of history that we went through. Um, but frankly, when I come tonight, I'm, I'm uh, really struck by this uh, issue that um, um, Esther, that Dr. Tailfeathers raises about the uh, drama of addictions and the fact that addictions seem to be reaching out to epidemic proportion, and I'm thinking particularly of crystal meth and crack cocaine, which uh, is uh, just on the streets. It's on the streets in Lethbridge. It's dramatically, I think, changing many, many environments, and it's affecting all populations, but it's disproportionately affecting uh, Aboriginal uh, populations. Um, uh, so, when, for instance, we, we see this happening in the streets of, uh, of uh, Lethbridge, um, here we are in Standoff, the administrative center of the, of the blood tribe at the, at the core of, the, of, of, a, of a reserve. And as, we, as you mentioned, Esther, uh, there was a day when uh, you actually had to apply for a pass from the Indian agent to leave the reserve. And it wasn't that long. It was the 50s or 60s. That when I arrived here, people, fairly young people, talked about this as an experience that they went through. The uh, centralization of power was that extreme. But obviously now people have cars, people have cell phones. Probably a very big part of the blood tribe doesn't live on the reserve anymore. They live in uh, Lethbridge, or they live in Calgary, or they might live in Hawaii, or they might live in uh, Tucson, or, or uh, Miami, for that matter. So uh, this is, as you know, Charles, this is a you know a very tough political question. And, and when we're speak when I'm speaking with you, I'm speaking to the person where the executive power and the political responsibility merge in your person. As I mentioned, you, you know, you are, you are a CEO of a very, very major operation and, and the buck does stop with you. So can you talk to us, talk to me and talk to us a little bit about how you see the nature of the responsibility of the blood tribe 
to those who live on reserves, to those who live in other places, and, and of course when we're talking about epidemics of drug addiction, for instance, it's not specific to territory, people move around. Uh, who's responsible? Who, who's going to deal with these, uh, with these immense uh, challenges and, and uh, dilemmas for our society? Who's responsible? Thank you, Tony. That's a big loaded question. I think Dr. Tailfeathers has really laid out yeah. a good foundation in regards to where we were in history, you know, mm -hmm. our, our lifestyle, you know, our, our connections to our families, our connection to the land, and our spiritual connect connections as well, too, you know. We often hear several different concepts. We, we hear about the balance of life, you know. And we, we also still understand that a lot of the responsibility still lies within yourself, you know. Take, for example, Dr. Tailfence, you know. We come from the same environment, you know, many of us, you know. We're 10,000 strong now, and, you know, and uh, what made her successful, you know. Uh, these are questions that, that we often ask, you know. There was a study not too long ago where uh, they did a little bit of research on successful Aboriginal women, you know, and what made them successful, you know. Uh, at the, the outcome, the outcome was that was that there was still a real strong cultural base, you know, that they had an identity of who they were, you know. They they didn't have difficulty about loss of identity. They they understood their culture. They understood the language. They spoke the language, you know those type of things, you know. Another important factor was that there was a strong family support, meaning that your, your, your parents were there for you to give you direction, to give you guide. As well, further to that, we also understood that there is a real strong community support, you know. That definitely we identified role models, you know. Definitely there was a direction from grandparents and parents that were already set for, for these kids, you know. So those were the type of things nowadays that we see perhaps successful people, successful women like Dr. Telfans, perhaps. These are the support systems that were put in place. Now, having said that, we also, I also heard from the, from the presentation by Dr. Telfans, when the residential school era came in, you know, and I'm a product of that. I went to residential school for 11 years, you know. Now picture this as a five-year-old, five-year-old being taken away from something that is nurturing. That's all you know is comforting. From the day you, from the morning that you wake up and to the evening that you go to sleep, you, you have your parents and you have your environment, you know, small little environment for a five-year-old. Being taken away from that environment all of a sudden, and being placed in a big building, you know, uh, with, with people uh, that are, are supposedly going to provide that same support, which never did. So, like I said, I'm a product of uh, uh, 11 years of residential school. Many of my friends never survived that, you know, being taken away from that, you know, from high from after school, it was a life of dependency, whether it was welfare, whether it was from uh, living off your relatives, uh, it was a dependency on alcoholism, on drugs, and many, many other things, you know. So they never survived. Eventually, uh, they were they died of cirrhosis or 
health reasons or accidents and stuff like that, you know. So those type of things we, we, uh, we, we survive, you know. What's scary today right now, uh, Tony said 65% of our population is a young population. And it's a population that come, the generation before that, the products of Indian residential school have, have not been, have, they haven't passed down, you know, the uh, traditional form of family raising and stuff like that. So with a young population like that, you know, uh, we've had addictions for many years, you know, there's different addictions. Uh, alcohol was very, very chronic uh, back in our days, still is, you know, but now all of a sudden you're starting to see all these new drugs uh, starting to, co to come in. You know, we're, we're a big reserve, you know, a lot of our, 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 our travels nowadays cross boundaries into uh, major cities and stuff like that. We interact, you know, and stuff, you know, so all of that is, is coming back onto the reserve, you know. Uh, we talked about uh, um, how the reserve is set up, you know, through the Indian Act, you know, and, and it, the Indian Act is a, it's like a two-edged uh, sword, you know. On one hand, you know, it's because of the treaties that were established with, with the uh, Crown, you know, and on the other side, the policy that was established through the Indian Act is very, very restrictive. Where we don't own land, we don't own our houses, we're occupants of the lands and we're occupants of our houses and stuff like that. And Dr. Yes. Tailfeathers alluded to that. It's held by Her Majesty. Held by the Majesty, you know. <laughs> I can't go to the bank and, and use a, a parcel of land or my house as collateral, you know. So economic development-wise, you know, it's very, very hard for us for us to move forward with that, you know. Some of the things, you know, it's, it's uh, in my own mind, personally, it, it hasn't been all that bad. Some of the things that I, I received from uh, Indian residential school was a formal education. You know, some of us went into the more uh, uh, traditional traditional careers, uh, ranching and farming. So quite a bit you see that. That's our two biggest uh, uh, resources right now is our, our farming and ranching. You know, out of that, you know. So with that, you know, our, our people have succeeded. Uh, to a limited degree up to this point with just the farming and, and ranching, you know. Now, getting into the area of health, you know, as you know, nationally, uh, the government provides the provinces with the mandate to provide health care. But because we are wards of the government, you know, it's been then been given to a federal responsibility, you know. So in, in healthcare, there's, there's two services that are being provided. One is your insured service, you know, it's when you get sick, you go to the medical doctor or you go to the hospital. The other one is more of a, a more community uh, public health uh, system. So on reserve, uh, the federal government provides a public health background, you know. So normally we, we, we have the clinic that's, that's been set up, you know, we have uh, uh, programs that are established for addiction, we have programs for home care. We've got programs for dental, uh, those type of things, you know. But it, it doesn't provide that access for our people uh, when, when you want to get into the higher le levels of health, you know. So with that addiction, there's all different factors. We talked about lifestyle. We talked about dep dependency and stuff like that. And it's easy for us to plan a diet for our people so that we can prevent diabetes, you know, but when you're living in poverty, you know, our people are, are not going to be able to go buy the, the food that is 
required, you know, for them to maintain their health, you know. There's really high un unemployment right now. I still suspect that uh, on reserve that we're as high as 60%, if not 65% unemployment. So our people are still very, very dependent on the system. You know, our kids, because of that vicious cycle, you know, are very, very dependent on the system. We're trying very hard internally within our boundaries to establish uh, opportunities for self-operations. Uh, self, uh, for economic development, but our population is just expanding so much, you know. And then we haven't uh, been able to use the same uh, employment opportunities that perhaps non-Aboriginals have in regards to getting uh, money so that we can start uh, small business and stuff like that. So the question still remains, what are we going to do if addiction is so, is so large? Uh, I used to be the uh, CEO of, of, of the health center for, uh, for eight years. I was the uh, hospital administrator for 12 years, so I have 20 years of background, you know. But my background is mainly on administration and management of providing public service, you know. So about five years ago, then Chief Chris Shea, uh, who, who has also a health administrative background, we put our heads together realized that addiction was far too big for a department to handle. Then in order for us to make a dent in that, the community had to be involved. Everybody had to be involved, you know. Elders had to come forward, you know, women had to come forward, you know. All the departments had to come forward in sort of a multi, multi uh, way that we, we, we can establish that, you know. So what we did is what we established the uh, task force to do the research, you know, uh, I mean, why do we drink, you know, what is the root causes, you know, and we're beginning to hear some of that, the colonization, the loss of identity, the taking away of kids into the residential school, you know, how the in, in Indian Act is impacting on us, you know, our in, inability to sort of uh, cross that boundary where we can be self-governization, uh, you know, type of thing. Now, one of the key things that we also have to understand, that First Nation be, uh, people and communities and tribes still believe that they are a nation. And that, that notion is built on the uh, treaty signing. You know, in exchange you know, for, for, the, for the land itself, we agreed that the government would provide the services so that now that we're being wards of the government, they've uh, created the boundaries for us to... Uh, uh, extend our, our life, you know. Those are that's that's still a, a very deep notion for us that we are a nation within a nation, you know. However, you know, because of uh, how things have transpired to this stage, you know, we just can't seem to get uh, our, our life together, and so subsequently we've got all these diseases, you know. Just three years ago, three four years ago, there was a, a we did another research, and we have what we refer to as a fetal alcohol. Uh, syndrome, spectrum disorder, disorder, and a lot of our kids, as a result of, uh, you know, young pregnancy, teen pregnancy, you know, with drinking being involved, we have a lot of kids that are impacted and affected by that, and it's going to, uh, it's going to uh, drain, of course, our, our community, it's going to require lots of resources, monies, you know, so that we can provide programs, you know. 
But going back to, to the uh, direct seed, we're beginning to see, uh, well, we're not beginning to see. We know definitely we have a big problem with uh, crystal meth being introduced into the uh, community. We are seeing some of the uh, impacts, both in behavior, you know, uh, lifestyle, as well for these young kids, you know.